so um, I'm very pleased to welcome Richard Meyer. Thanks, Sarah, and, um, and thank you also for hosting me this couple of days, and to the students at York and everyone else who's here, also to the Art Gallery of Ontario. Thank you for coming, I mean hosting, and those of you who are here, thank you for coming. Um, so I'm going to speak um, extemp somewhat extemporaneously, just because I thought it's too weird to give a paper on the book that I just, that's, that's published. Um, <laughs> but I do want, I am going to talk about some things that aren't in the book, or things that, um, I'm going to talk about the argument of the book, which is sort of encapsulated in a way by this Maurizio Nannucci um, sculpture, which is on display at the Museum of Fine Arts. Is that what it's called? Boston, yeah. Um, and, as you can tell, I have not. I, I never saw it in the flesh, which is a bad art historical admission to make. But sometimes in this day and age, I mean, anyway, there, I try to see everything I can that I write about in the flesh. I mean, firsthand. But and I guess I could have gone to Boston before this book was published, since it's from MIT Press, which is in Boston. But I didn't, or Cambridge. Um, but I didn't. But I sort of get the point, as I think you can, of this work without actually having seen it. Um, which is this message, and I, I was interested in the fact that when the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston opened their contemporary wing, this was one of the works they acquired, um, and they're an encyclopedic museum like, like the Art Gallery of Ontario. So it was an interesting message to have, although it is in the contemporary wing, Sarah Parsons tells me, who has seen it. Um, and I sort of, anyway, I thought it, I, I would like it if, this, if they had placed it somewhere else other than the contemporary, like with the ancient art or something, but they didn't. Um, but the point of it is that every work of art was once contemporary to its own artist and culture. And the reason why this is important to my book, um, what was contemporary art, uh, and I'll explain the cover image in a moment, is because I basically wrote the book out of a certain frustration with the present, what might be called the presentism, or what I call the nowism of the contemporary art world, and the sense that everything that's happened last week or next week, so let's say the Freeze Art Fair, or maybe that's happening now in New York, or the Venice Biennale, which will be coming up this summer, so very soon, um, that, that, every, that, that there's a sort of itinerary of the international, uh, the global art world that one has to keep up with, even if you can't afford or don't have the time or the desire to actually go to all of these shows and fairs, you have to somehow, whether it's through the internet or friends or reading art forums at artforum.com or whatever it might be, you have to try to, I felt this pressure as someone who teaches the history of art up to the contemporary moment and writes occasionally art criticism, this pressure to sort of keep up. And I found myself increasingly unhappy with that pressure um, and increasingly also at odds in terms of writing scholarly work. Like this book took me personal reasons I won't get into, that, and, and ways that I delayed and, what is it called, procrastinated, um, and did other things like, like curating and so that I'm happy I did uh, in retrospect, but it meant the book took nine years, and let's say it could have taken six years, but I couldn't have done it in six days or six months, which is more, I think, the temporality that feels like, you know, that you have to be up on the latest or newest or what will have been the newest in a few days or a few weeks thing. And um, this also just seems completely at odds to me with scholarship, with the kind of deep research and reflection and also craft 
crafting of prose that I think good scholarship entails. Um, and so it just takes it takes longer. Um, I, I don't think that means that writing good art criticism or writing good blogs is easy. Um, I don't think that the length of time you spend on a project necessarily means that it's more important or more profound. But I do think that um, certain kinds of writing, certain kinds of research, uh, and so part of the argument of the book was to argue, was to uh, suggest not that contemporary art is over, but I do like that sort of like uh, counterintuitive sense that the title suggests that it's something in the past, that it's something that has ended. But rather, but that's not the argument of the book. The argument of the book is not that we're post-contemporary, but rather that uh, contemporary art has passed. So I'm looking in this book at what was contemporary art in 1927. There's a chapter about this course of Alfred Barr, who at the time of professor, not yet the founding director of the Museum of Modern Art, but at the uh, professor at Wellesley College, a graduate student at Harvard. He taught a course um, that was, is thought to have been the first course in art history in the United States that went up to the, what was then the present moment, meaning 1927. So I'm interested in what was contemporary art in 1927. Here, this cover image is from 1940s, and the caption for this photograph, um, which I found in the archives of the contemporary art in Boston, this is a photograph taken at what was then called modern art, and this is Miss Polly Cotter, that's her name, um, looking at a prize-winning sculpture by Alexander Calder made of plexiglass, and it was actually the, uh, it was the winner in a competition that had been, um, that had been sponsored by Roman Haas, which is the chemical and uh, engineering company that uh, invented and first marketed plexiglass in the 1930s, and they did, they marketed plexiglass as a military and industrial product, so the, the notes, the, uh, what they called, the, um, a bomber, bomber planes in World War II, the, the part that where the actual pilot sits, I can't remember what it's called, like the cockpit, I guess, basically, um, it would be made of plexiglass, uh, and certain kinds of artillery had various plexiglass parts, um, but what Roman Haas wanted to do in 1939, this is at the World's Fair, this is the Roman Haas Pavilion, and they are uh, promoting plexiglass and its sister plastic crystallite. Um, and this is the... Oh, okay. Institute of Modern Art in Boston where they then borrowed that same sculpture. So anyway, I was interested in the idea that um, as early as 1940, corporate um, interests would see that artists could be used to promote um, their products and that also that this is what contemporary art, one experience of contemporary art in 1940 
looked like. And I, I liked the fact for a cover image that I thought that even though people wouldn't know, my boyfriend was like, Who's, who the hell is going to know? People are going to think it's a book about plastic, or they're going to think it's like some sci-fi book or whatever. And I liked all of that. Um, and he's like, no one's going to know what Calder and all of that. Which to me, that, that kind of unknowability was sort of also the issue. Because, what, because I think that there is somehow a, an assumption that contemporary art now, today, in 2013, is more challenging, more distracting, or complicated, or market-driven than it was in the past. And part of the idea of the, of the cover was to say, well, here's the experience of contemporary art. But I thought that her, her expression, as she looked at it, I sort of liked the fact that you can't really tell what is she thinking, like, what the hell is this? Is the sculpture sort of thinking, what the hell is, who the hell is she? You know, but, but anyway, I liked this sort of uh, face-off. Uh, and, and then the backstory, which I tell. So that's... That's the one version of Alex. Not another version of my own teaching. So this is a one of my classes, a graduate seminar called what that was called What Is Contemporary Art that I taught uh, I don't know about ten years, eight years ago in Los Angeles when I was at the University of Southern California, where I taught for fifteen years before before Stanford, and it was actually at USC that I that I was struck by how many students, including many of these students, several Some dumb to me. Anyway, whatever. So, and some left the program. But um, and then I left. And so whatever happened. But and some finished successfully, and some got ill. But um, one. Uh, but anyway. Uh, but I was teaching this course, and it was about and the, my idea about teaching contemporary art, which is borrowed in part from Alfred Barr's class in 1927, was that instead of trying to figure out like well, who's going to be written about in 100 years, or who's going to matter to posterity. To just take what is on view in, let's say, Los Angeles or Toronto, um, in a, at a particular moment, as exemplary of contemporary art, not to say it's the best or the most important contemporary art, but that it tells us something about what it means to be making art and to be alive actually at this moment. So that also meant using the expertise of my students, because I found increasingly over the 15 years that I taught graduate students at USC uh, that many of them were returning students who already had careers as curators, critics, sometimes as artists actually, um, and then had decided to come and get an art history um, And so uh, I wanted to tap into, just as Barr tried to tap into the expertise of his students as Wellesley, or have that development himself didn't have, I wanted the students to draw on the work that they'd done. Often they knew more about what was going on in the contemporary art scene in LA than I did. They, they hung out more than I did. So this, that man gesturing toward is a, is a, was a student, is a student, well, he's not a program, but he was a student at the time named, and he is a person named Aram Moshe Adi, and he was also a curator at this alternative art space that we're standing outside of, which is called LAX Art. And he's explaining, and there's actually a mural on the wall, which is by, I believe, Daniel J. Martin. So he's explaining all of that. I'm taking a picture. I'm also very interested in the fact that we're on the street, like, and so that and one of the arguments is that contemporary art and contemporary culture can really only be taught if you're willing to leave the, 
realm of the classroom behind and actually go out into the world, which is what Bard did with his students, taking them to the Five and Dime, taking them to the Theater, taking them to see Metropolis, the film Metropolis, taking them to, to a... Um, Taking them to a, a, a parking. Uh, this is uh, the Motor Mart in Boston, combination parking lot and filling station. So you could actually get your well, yes. gas and park it there for a day or two, or however long. That was this is a later photograph, but that was an absolutely new idea in 1920. But he took them to see this parking lot. I mean, this parking structure uh, being built, and it was actually finished in 1920. He showed them Soviet magazines, Soviet Spokino, the managing editor of the magazine was Varvara Spokanova, a very important partner of the wife of Alexander. And Barr actually went to Moscow in 1920 to leave from Wellesley after he taught this contemporary class. He went to the Bauhaus in the South, went to all over Europe. Holland, but he also then went and spent most of his time abroad in Soviet post-revolutionary And he actually ended up contributing an article which was translated from the to Soviet Spokino. So Barr was teaching his students, he didn't, I mean, he didn't bring them with him to Russia, but he brought, in effect, mm. Russia back, to, or Soviet uh, revolutionary culture back <laughs> to the United States because he. Yeah, he he purchased, he photographed, uh, he purchased what he could from artists, he, he photographed, he bartered with artists, um, he took them out, you know, anyway, and he brought these materials back in order to teach them, and then later, some of them were shown at the Museum of Modern Art. So I was interested in, I was interested in this fact that Bard, one of the ways he's teaching contemporary art is actually by taking the students, for example, to, to buildings that were still under construction at the time that they visited. So he literally is showing them what the future will be, but also asking them to look at, um, he, he didn't have them read, he had them read magazines like Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, The New Masses, as well as Sovetsko Kino. And those American magazines, he had them read not so much for the content as for the graphic design, the typography, and the ads. He was very interested, that's not what I want show you, do I have it here? This is an ad, sorry, it's a little not great um, reproduction, but this is an ad for Saks Fifth Avenue for menswear um, from the 1927 Vanity Fair. This is a later Vanity Fair from 32, but it's a cover by Miguel Covarrubias, who Barbara was one of the most interesting um, artists. Covarrubias was a painter, but he was better known for the caricatures and covers he did for Vanity Fair. And Barr actually contributed to Vanity Fair um, and in fact, this, um, this modern art questionnaire was originally developed for Barr's class at Wellesley. He, had this, he, had, he supposedly asked the students to identify each of the following people, including you see or, or terms, most of them are proper names, but including Miguel Covarrubias, George Gershwin, Alfred Stieglitz, um, anyway, and you, you can, I, I, I'm sure you just, Saks Fifth Avenue, um, um, Schoenberg, so you, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. So you could see that Barr's idea, and he says, and explain their relation to modern artistic expression. One of the things that was very interesting to me about this, that's the cover of Vanity Fair from August 1927. By a woman, actually the woman who did the most covers uh, other than Covarrubias, 
uh, who went under, whose name professionally was A.H. Fish, so people didn't know it was a woman until later on. But this very, anyway, and, and this whole, the reason I'm mentioning this is because Barr was actually thoughtful about graphic design, cartoons, um, department store displays, advertisement. He saw all of this as part of modern artistic expression. He didn't understand, as well as modern uh, atonal or uh, experimental music, film, literature, um, uh, theater, and so forth. Um, he, poetry. He didn't understand painting. He didn't feel that you could study painting and sculpture, contemporary painting and sculpture, without looking at the larger culture of uh, experimentation, um, of modern experimentation from which they, uh, on which they drew and from which they were um, derived. And so for Barr, one of the things that was very interesting to me about this course and, and then its appearance in Vanity Fair in the form of this quiz is that it was so multidisciplinary, so much like what I think cultural studies or visual studies promises to be nowadays, but very often isn't. Um, so that was the idea behind the book. Um, but there was uh, parts of the book that weren't, oh, so here, this is just to say, um, Barr was interested in how, sorry, I'm getting, I'm confusing you because I'm not explaining what I'm showing, but I will. So that's the class, that's Barr's materials. Then I, the book looks at, in the next chapter after the Wellesley course, it looks at some of the shows other than Cubism and Abstract Art that Barr was involved with as director of the Museum of Modern Art in the 1930s. Uh, shows that included a show of prehistoric art, a show of Persian frescoes, um, and a show of Italian masterpieces, um, including this Raphael, Madonna of the Chair. That, this was shown at the Museum of Modern Art, as was Botticelli's Birth of Venus, in 1940. And at the time that this was shown, Bard developed another chart, this one called It begins with Giotto, and it ends with Seurat, Van Gogh, Renoir, Manet, and the Impressionists, and Delacroix. So I'm just showing you this, this second chart because no one ever talks about this chart. Everyone talks about that Cubism abstract art chart, but actually Barr made many, many charts of all different kinds of histories. Um, but it's this one that ends up with abstraction that we've been told and taught again and again. And I was interested in well, what, what, were, what was this Renaissance art doing at MoMA? How could a museum of modern art be showing art that was 400 uh, years old? Or how could it be showing, um, go back to that. Uh, this is the birth of Venus being uncrated at the Museum of Modern Art. And this is the prehistoric uh, rock pictures of Europe and Africa in 1937. How, what, in what ways could it be explained that a modern art museum would show Renaissance or prehistoric art? And there are many different answers that I talk about in the book, but two that are really important just to say um, now are that one, Barr believed that one of the things that distinguished the modern artist from any the 20th century artist from any artist in the past was that he, and usually for Barr it's he, had access to the entire range of civilization from pre the Paleolithic to the, what he called the French, Barr called the French primitive to African Negro art, again I'm quoting Barr's language, so that to medieval, you know, um, uh, manuscript, illuminated manuscripts through, through printed books and images so that Basically, Barr was saying the modern artist surrounds himself with all of these different kinds of visual 
materials. And to understand what the modern artist is doing, we have to understand the images and the cultures that he is looking at. So for Barr, actually, the fact that, let's say, many modernists were interested in the rediscovery or the discovery in the late 19th and early 20th century of prehistoric cave painting, and that that became one of the ways and a different route toward abstraction, say, or one possible inspiration for abstraction, and this whole fantasy that you could, through prehistory, sort of escape from a teleological narrative of modern history. That, that, anyway, um, that Barr was interested in this and felt that you could therefore show prehistoric art at a museum of modern art because you were showing it through the lens of modernity. The other thing that's important to know about these, these paintings, um, which are huge watercolors on um, uh, paper or canvas, depending on how big they are, um, unlike these paintings, which are the original, these are the actual Botticelli and the Raphael paintings, these were all facsimiles. So every single work that was shown in prehistoric rock pictures was a 20th century facsimile done by a modern artist who had, who had accompanied uh, an uh, excavation um, uh, with, these, uh, with these archaeologists and um, as part of the documentation of that excavation had made full-scale, um, on-site, full-scale watercolor, um, usually watercolor uh, uh, copies of the original prehistoric painting. So and actually what you were looking at when you went to MoMA in 1937, these were some of the most contemporary works because they had, in certain cases, probably, so these are all, were all on loan from a, I won't go into too much detail, but they were all on loan from in Frankfurt. It's actually interesting that it's from a German ethnological, uh, cultural morphology, Institute for Cultural Morphology in Frankfurt. And Barr had seen them the previous summer and been blown away by these facsimiles, because what was on display in Frankfurt was not, of course, of course, you can't take, I mean, people have tried, or you could sort of try to take a cave painting, but it's not that easy to just, you know, take part of a cave uh, with you, or a big part, like, look how big these are. But anyway, um, uh, so Barr went to Frankfurt, and he saw all these facsimiles of cave paintings, and they kind of blew his mind, and he said, I really want to show these in New York. And Leo Frobenius, the head of this institute, was like, oh, that's fine. I'll just have the artists make you a fresh set. So basically, these were copies of the copies that had been made on site. So they were some of the newest works. They had just been made since the previous summer. So they were actually the most contemporary thing on display at MoMA. But that's not how they were understood necessarily at the time. They were understood as sort of windows onto a prehistoric past. But I'm interested in the book and the fact that there are these copyists who are themselves modern artists who are producing these for a modern audience. Um, and, and the Museum of Modern Art actually, as part of a fundraising, uh, failed fundraising effort in 1946, they were trying to build a new um, wing because they had outgrown the building on 53rd Street because the, the, because the museum had become so popular um, in the years since 1929 actually throughout the whole depression, I mean, one of the things that people did during the depression, because museums were free then, um, they went, and so museum membership, museum patronage actually went way up during the, in America during the depression, which is an interesting little known fact. But, uh, and the Museum of Modern Art was extremely popular, so much so that, that they couldn't really do what they needed to do within the space they had, so they were trying to raise a million dollars to build this new wing, and in order to raise money, they created this pamphlet which you see before you, which had these different images, which said modern art 5,000 years ago, and that was actually a, 
can you still hear me if I move away from the mic? That was actually, that's a detail from one of the facsimiles of a game painting that was in, um, in In the fundraising uh, pamphlet, so it's again being made for the purposes of getting people to give money to the museum so that it can expand. But the idea is that modern art is not what happens only in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but modern art, as Barr once said, is everything that overturns the academic, the state, the status quo, anything that's innovative or um, uh, radical in the, in, in, in the creative arts, whether that's 5,000 years ago, 400 years ago, or today, but it's also that what was, what was made 5,000 years ago can be freshly seen from, to, from a 20th century, a modern perspective. So that, and what's going, and that's not the way, what, what, what's going on with, let's say, that detail of the um, cave painting with, with the overlay of the red and the mustard, that's about modern graphic design that has nothing to do, there is no color like that in the original painting, in the original cave rendering. And also this view from below, this sort of photo, the way in which photography is being used to sort of render contemporary the sculpture and the way in which um, uh, uh, graphic design is used and, and the relation between architecture, drawing, painting, sculpture, the, the sort of claim graphic design, typography, a claim that all, the, all these different media will be part of what a modern art museum um, examines. It's a really interesting, I thought was a really interesting claim, and this is sort of what I'm arguing, although this, he used, generally used the word modern and contemporary interchangeably, um, I'm arguing that Barr's idea of modern art should be how we now understand contemporary, so not as a designation for what comes after the modern, or a period that starts in 1945 or 1968 or 19, 89, which is most often now how, let's say, museums of contemporary art or courses in contemporary art periodize the contemporary, and it's very often seen as the latest in a whole succession of art historical moments or movements or periods, stylistic periods or historical periods. I'm arguing in this book that contemporary art, like Barr understood modern art, that contemporary art is a dialectic or a relational experience between a present, a current moment, a now, and a past, and that we have to put both things in play in order to fully understand or try to understand um, the production of art as well as the history of art. The production of art now as well as its relation to a history of art and of culture more broadly conceived. So I'll just briefly show you what I didn't talk about, um, which is in these are images that are not in the book, but when I went, I only went to, um, this is from Art Basel, Miami, 
and um, I've only, which I've only been to that one art fair, and I pride myself on the, I don't know, I'm sure I'll go to another art fair, but I was fairly freaked out by Art Basel Miami, in part because um, because I wasn't invited to most of the parties, and like I couldn't go into the VIP lounge, you know, with the collector's lounge, because I'm not a collector. And, but I was also really struck by this aggression on the part of some of the art and the gallerists toward the very collectors who were being courted by the art fair. So this is a booth, uh, this is Arena Spaulding's show, but this, and I'm forgetting the name of the artist, which is bad, but um, there were these, this painting that said, Die Collector Scum, like right in the, right in the, what is it called? The, convention center where the art fair, this is in the main space, not one of the little side art fairs, but in the main hall of the, of the, of the Art Basel Miami. And then when you went outside the booth, it said, relax, it's only a crap Rena Spaulding's show. And you could just say, well, this is Rena Spaulding's, which is this sort of ex collective gallery of art, artist-run gallery. And you could say, well, they're not indicative of really what the eth ethos of the show. But there were also these t-shirts being sold by somebody else, not connected to Rena Spaulding's that said, at, but in the art fair that said, fuck art fairs. So I was just, and there were many other moments where I felt like there was this kind of aggression um, or this self-hatred, or I wasn't unsure how to understand this. But I did, but I did think partially this has to do with the ways in which, even as we're being told the market is running everything or there is no art world outside of the market, I think that there is a desire on the part of artists and maybe even on the part of collectors themselves and on the part of dealers to have art be something more or other than simply a commodity or at least to, to take revenge on the, um, on the capitalist logic of, um, of the, the global art world. And I wanted to sort of in my own mind connect this to um, Barr's interest. It, Barr understood commercial culture as part of how modern art, part of the contribution that modern art was making was to also reconfigure um, how magazines and department stores were selling themselves or selling products, delivering products. So he understood that art, and he also understood that art was a commodity. And so one of the things he said in the 1929 issue of Vogue magazine where he was introducing the new Museum of Modern Art because they had to sort of sell this idea that there was going to be a Museum of Modern Art in New York in 1929, and he sort of, and this is in Vogue magazine, so you have to un, like take the context into account, but he writes, and I'm paraphrasing, something like, in the history of art, as in many other matters, money talks vividly. Let us not be ashamed to listen. And I think Barr definitely was interested in listening to money. I mean, the whole Museum of Art is, was founded by these wealthy collectors, Abby Aldrich Rockefeller and other mostly women, female collectors, of art and Barr, he got into trouble with the board of trustees when he did things that didn't, that they didn't think were, um, that they didn't think were appropriate for MoMA, and he ended up getting fired in 1943, and then to, only to be rehired in a sort of curatorial position. But he also understood that part of his job, it wasn't the part he liked best, but part of his job was sort of trying to make nice with rich patrons, um, and that also artists had to sell their work in order to survive in, in a capitalist culture. So I, I kind of partially wanted to suggest that this, this die collector scum, or even this is the Louis Vuitton boutique that opened in the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles during the Murakami show. So not this is not the Museum of Contemporary Art bookstore. This is a gallery that was in the Murakami show, um, but it was a freestanding Louis Vuitton 
at actual Louis Vuitton boutique with Louis Vuitton employees. That's who those people wearing the white suits are. And I went to one of the, not the first opening, but like one of the press previews for this show, this Murakami show, and it was totally clear to me that there were like Beverly Hills shoppers who were there because a new Louis Vuitton boutique was opening. Like they had no interest in Murakami, they just wanted to see the, the stuff that was for sale in the new boutique. Um, and, but here, on, that's on the left, but on the right is actually the very first time that Jasper John's white flag, his painting was shown, was not, as is often claimed, um, at the Castelli Gallery when they did John's show, the premiere of John's work, which was this one-man show at Castelli, which then went on the cover of Art News and so forth, but it was actually in the windows of Bonwit Teller department store, uh, which you see here, um, because um, John's, along with Rauschenberg and Warhol, were all doing window displays for Bonwit Teller's and for Tiffany's, um, but that, especially for Rauschenberg and John's, who did these window displays under the pseudonym Madsen Jones, um, Madsen being um, Rauschenberg's grandmother's maiden name and Jones being a variant on John's, because they were so ashamed of doing this commercial work, and Warhol, who did it under the name Andy Warhol, because he was very happy to be uh, identified with any work anywhere that was his own. Uh, this, so I'm just trying to argue, I mean, although the, neither of these images are in the book, unfortunately, I should have put them in, but anyway, I'm trying to argue that this, is, this, Louis, this marketing by the museum and this infiltration of commodity culture into the space of vanguard art is not new. And we shouldn't imagine that the problems that we're confronting now, maybe yes, the, the global uh, pervasiveness of our, of our market. I mean, the market has never been more genuinely global and more cap fully capitalized than it is today. But certainly the issues that that brings about, the contradictions, the tensions, I'm arguing these are not new and that maybe we could look at earlier moments as a guide to how to negotiate the current moment. So I'm going to stop talking in a moment or take questions. But before I do, I want to read something. Oh, I all, this is um, actually people. I just, I'm very interested in pictures of people looking at art, because I feel like very often the his, in the history of art, um, we get pictures of the artworks, but we don't see the viewers. And so these are, this is actually, unfortunately, I couldn't find any pictures of people looking at MoMA at the, at the Renaissance Art Show. But right before it was at MoMA, it was at the Art Institute of Chicago. So these are people in 1939 looking, wait, yes, 1939, looking at Raphael's Madonna of the Chair um, at the Art Institute of Chicago, so right before this show came to the Museum of Modern Art, and, I mean, sorry, yes, the Museum of Modern Art, and this is my friend Julia Bryan Wilson and two of my former graduate students um, when we went to a show uh, that at LAX Art that was actually curated a different moment from the one I showed you, the picture of Aram Moshe Adi, but this show was also curated by Aram Moshe Adi, and it was an art, it's an artist named Waliad Waliad Beshti, who's very interested in transit, and so he does this thing. Anyway, he's he does this thing where he he um, sends glass through Fe, in FedEx. He sends glass through the mails, knowing that it will crack, and he's in, and then he and then when the glass arrives, all cracked, he takes it out of the FedEx envelope, and he sort of displays. Anyway, he's interested in, but in this piece, he actually didn't. This glass, he cracked it himself, and he made this mirrored glass floor which when you step on it, it, con it continues to break more, shatter more. Um, and so, of course, anyone who's concerned about their weight, like I sometimes am, I, you know, you're very aware that you're like, 
you weigh a certain amount when you're, or whatever, you're breaking the glass and you feel like everyone's turning around to look. But, the, but when we walked into the gallery, these three women immediately moved to the side, the, the side of the room and they kind of started covering their bodies. And I was like, what is going on? And they're like, we're wearing skirts. Um, and you know, they were uncomfortable with the view up their skirts that the floor, that the floor afforded. And they were not warned, and I did not know. I didn't know what this Wally Ed Beshti show, I didn't know what, that there was this mirrored floor. And they said, why didn't you, you know, the, Julia especially, who's the professor, the one on the far left, who's my friend, she was especially like angry with me for not telling her. And I'm like, Julia, I didn't know. Like, you know, I don't know if her, whatever, her underwear was ripped or what, I don't know what her problem exactly was, but she was very upset with me for not warning them that there was gonna be this mirrored floor view up, up their skirts. And, um, and, I, and one of the things that I'm interested in is the discomfort that contemporary art can provoke. I mean, here this is an explicit bodily discomfort because, and it's also a gendered discomfort, but I sort of feel like somebody is always the woman in the, in the skirt with a mirrored floor. I mean, literally or metaphorically in the art world, someone is always in this role of be, feeling marginalized and uncomfortable and, and shamed by you know, the display of, of, somebody, of, of something going on uh, or by the party they're not invited to at the art fair or whatever it might be. And so I'm interested in that. I'm interested in, in not just ideal experiences of viewing art or and not to say that they're necessarily so, I don't, know, I don't know how to read exactly the people on the left, but definitely the three women on the right are not happy at this, in this moment. Um, and I'm interested in that uh, unhappiness. Okay, so just to finish up. I'm going to read something um, from the book. This is the work. So after all of this, what was contemporary art, I sort of felt like I had to end the book by talking about at least one contemporary artist who I thought was doing something in the spirit that the book uh, is arguing that we should be doing as viewers, which is kind of connecting our own contemporary moment, the moment of now, to uh, two different um, experiences of, of history and of the past. So I'm going to read, and so the way that I deal with this in the afterword to the book is also by returning to a work of art criticism that I had written earlier, um, in, earlier in my life, which was, uh, so I'm going to read to you now, this is called Ligon's Light, and it's from the afterword of the book. And I'm, you'll, you'll understand immediately why I'm reading this section to you. I've just arrived, so I'm quoting myself now. I've just arrived in Toronto, oh sorry, it's called Ligon's Light, um, parentheses, 2005. So this is all taking place in 2005. I've just arrived in Toronto and I'm already running late. My taxi driver isn't familiar with the power plant contemporary art gallery, the art space I need to get to, but he does know Harbor Front Center, the cultural complex of which the power plant is part. He drops me off beside an expanse of shops and high rise condominiums and I run into the building that looks the most like a renovated factory. I am here for the opening of the survey exhibit, Glenn Ligon, Some Changes, but virtually no one else seems to be. The place is nearly deserted. I look over to the gallery assistant at the front desk who says, they're all out on the deck. After convincing her to stash my luggage behind the desk, I walk quickly through the galleries and out the back of the building. I enter a roped off deck with a long bar, a table of hors d'oeuvres, and a sunny view of Lake Ontario. 200 or so people are listening to a speech by one of the two curators. So that was Wayne Bearwald. The other curator was Wanda, uh, Thelma Golden. 200 or so people are listening to a speech by one of the two curators of the show. I don't see the artist, or for that matter, anyone I recognize among the crowd of attentive Canadians. 
As the curator acknowledges the various individuals and foundations that have supported the show, I decide to slip back inside the galleries. I figure I have at least 10 minutes before the thank yous end and the crowd disperses. It takes a moment to adjust to the modified light of the galleries, and I turn to my right and enter a room that has only one work in it. It is a neon sculpture, the first to my knowledge of Ligon's career. In typewriter-like text, it spells out the words Negro Sunshine. No caps, no quotes, just the two words illuminating the otherwise shadowy room with their slightly humming off-white light. Outside, I think to myself, on that roped-off deck is the space of the contemporary art world, of collectors, curators, and gallerists socializing in the sun. Inside is Glenn Ligon's light, soft wattage, high impact, entirely unexpected, yet exquisitely plugged into both the historical past and the present. I spend the next 15 minutes in this light, leaving only when some other white people begin streaming in from the reception outside. And I go on to talk about, um, in that afterward, how this Negro Sunshine is a quote. Uh, this work is actually called Warm Broad Glow. And both Warm Broad Glow and Negro Sunshine are a quote from Gertrude Stein, um, who in 1907 writes, publishes a book called Three Lives that includes this short story called Melanctha. And in Melanctha is a, an account of Rose Johnson, who was, according to Gertrude Stein, a real black negress, meaning she was black by birth, but because she had been raised by white uh, adoptive parents, according to Gertrude Stein, she did not have the warm, broad glow, Rose Johnson did not have the warm, broad glow of Negro sunshine. And Glenn Ligon, who's a queer African-American artist in 2005, returns to this archive of modernist, of, a, of another very different kind of queer modernist writer, Gertrude Stein, fem white female writer, Who's, uh, who, who is herself trapped, both trafficking in and reworking racial stereotype. And he takes, he plucks this term, Negro sunshine, but then he calls the work warm, broad glow, meaning that he's directing you back, if you're willing to take the direction, he's directing you back to the sentence, to the, to the Stein text. But he takes just this phrase, Negro sunshine, and makes the very first neon sculpture of his career out of it. And, um, and what he does, so you'll notice that it, although it's neon, um, it's only lit lighting, there is no light coming out of the front of the letters, and that's because he put uh, a kind of paint called plastic, a kind of, kind of like a whiteout uh, paint or a, um, called Plasti Dip. Um, on, he painted the front of the letters to block out the light. So the light, the, the, although you can read Negro Sunshine, the neon actually only emanates from the back and the sides of each letter, not from the front. And so, which I think is part of his response to Stein's use of this term. But it's also, in 2005, a returning to 1907, to a moment before black, before post-black, before, um, before civil rights, when um, uh, a, a term like Negro Sunshine could be used with some impunity by an experimental modern, white modernist writer. And, um, and I think that, that that model of sort of remembering the past but also reworking it, taking up the legacy of another artist but also challenging the, the condition, the, the assumptions that governed um, what's, it, what, what's in that, what's, or the, the, the writing that, that is part of that legacy. Um, 
and reworking it in the contemporary moment, which was then 2005, in a place, Toronto, very different from Stein's uh, Paris or New York, um, I, th I thought was a, an especially uh, powerful example of, of uh, what I wanted, what I was trying to argue in the book and what I looked for in contemporary art, which is an attention not only to the current moment that we're all living through, but also to the ways in which that our own moment can reactivate uh, and reorganize the past. So I'm very happy to, oh, I should just say one last thing, um, which is that I, so this is, um, there's no queer, so some people were very disappointed that this book, or uh, some queer friends were disappointed that this book has no sex or queer, no homosexuality in it, other than the very late appearance of Gertrude Stein and Glenn Ligon. And, um, but there is this moment where the Wells, which is in the book, this is a page from, I mean, a, an image that appears in the book, which is where Barr has this show of modern art that he, because he believes you can't teach modern art from reproduction. The be, I mean, although you have to sometimes, but if you have to, make sure you have color facsimiles. But the best is to actually bring the art to the students. So he brings, he brings all this art, Courbet, Seurat, uh, anyway, all these different artists, Picasso, uh, works by them, prints in most cases, or works on paper in some paintings, he brings them to Wellesley. And the Wellesley College News publishes this article which says, seniors find modern artists queer and incomprehensible. And I was very interested in this because here queerness is about incomprehensibility. There is no sexual uh, connotation here, but I'm interested in this idea that queerness could still, that incomprehensibility could be useful. And so in this other book that I work, I've worked on over the last several years, which just came out, Art and Queer Culture, that I co-organized uh, with Catherine Lord, um, we talk about the idea of queerness as a, a certain kind of incomprehensibility, a certain kind of challenge, not least to gay and lesbian or homosexually identified artists and people. So that for us, this uh, the reason why the book is called Art and Queer Culture rather than Queer Art is, first of all, there are straight artists, or artists like Charles Ray and Nikki S. Lee who in no, and Pablo Picasso, whose portrait of Gertrude Stein is in the book, um, uh, or Brassai, whose photograph you see, this great photograph in Paris in the, in, the, in the 20s, the 20s or the early 30s. I think it might be the early 30s. Um, anyway, there are, very, but we wanted to argue that there is a way in which alternative forms of sexuality have been a resource for artists, not only for gay and lesbian or uh, uh, sexual minority artists consider themselves sexual minorities, but also for for many others um, throughout the modern period. So this book goes, it's a coffee table book or survey, very heavily illustrated in color, survey text that goes from 1885 to the present. And I'm just mentioning this, well, both because whatever, that book has also just appeared, but also because I do feel like there are different n kinds of queerness and that maybe this idea of queerness as incomprehensibility is a useful one to reactivate in our current moment. So I'm gonna stop there and I, I hope that there are questions, complaints, um, conversations that we can now air together. So thank you for listening. Maybe we could turn up the lights a little bit so I could see. Do we have time for a few questions? So anything at all, this is, I always say, which is true, it's my favorite part because I know what I, I think I know what I said, but now I learned something about what you all heard.
which can be very different from what I think I said. So anything at all, yes. Yeah. I thank you for asking that. Because I, um, I do, in a way, well, I don't know if I feel less pressure. Like someone just today, I think it was Gabby, asked me if I was going to Venice. Didn't you, Gabby? Um, and she is going, but she's going for the first time. And I've, 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 only, I've been twice. And anyway, my boyfriend, like, he, he's not interested in the art world at all, but he loves going to Venice. He's like, let's go, let's go. You know, it's, he thinks it's his good excuse just to go to Venice, but it's very, I mean, Venice is already expensive, and then they jack up the prices during the Biennale, but maybe not if you go in the, in the fall. But anyway, so I do feel, um, I guess what I feel mostly is that this book has brought me back to the fact that I'm a historian of art, not primarily a critic of contemporary art, and that while there are going to be these students who, I mean, I, I'm happy to have students who want to work on, the, on contemporary art. I would like to do some more historical projects now. And so actually, in a certain way, I'm also glad that this book came out, even though I wouldn't have timed it so that they came out at exactly the same moment the way they have, just because I would have liked a little bit of lag time between the two. The, the queer book, especially the part that I wrote, because um, Catherine and I divided up different tasks within the book, and I tended to do more of the historical art, and she did more of the contemporary. Um, I feel like between the two books, um, it's clear that I have these historical, or I feel like my commitments to the historical past and to the art historical past are rendered very clear. And, um, and so it's not as though, I guess, I didn't write these books in order not to have to write about contemporary art, but I do feel that these books, working on them, reminded me that I'm actually, I feel like there are so, there's so much attention on contemporary art and there's so many people who want to write about it and who want to be part of the scene that actually maybe me not being there is, is, is not a problem, you know, for anyone. Um, and it also, I feel like it also means that, like, as with Glenn Ligon's work, I mean, there are artists that I'm interested in who I'll continue, like, right now I'm actually past deadline for an article for Art Forum on the artist Joan Semmel, who's a feminist artist now in her 70s, um, who has a show up in New York and is about to show at the Freeze Art Fair and just had a show at the Bronx Museum. And part of what I'm interested in, part of my commitment about writing about Joan Semmel is I feel like too often we conflate contemporary art with emerging artists or contemporary art with young, with the artists in their 30s or 40s. And you know, art, artists who are in their 70s and 80s are no less contemporary, who are still working. Than, than artists in their 30s or 40s. Um, and Joan Semmel is someone who's been working a long, long time and has only recently, because of these big feminist shows and because she just recently got a sort of more aggressive gallery representing her. Anyway, so she's for the first time sort of, or for the first time in a long time, getting some attention. And I felt like I, I knew that I could help to be part of that because I have access to Art Forum and like I could pro I could propose to them I want to do a big Joan Semmel feature and they said yes. I mean I'm not saying that they wouldn't have done it with somebody else but let's just say I don't think there were a lot of people pitching a big Joan Semmel story for Art Forum so I just have to finish the damn thing. But um, but I don't I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I feel like it's okay if I decide like I'm going to write about Joan Semmel or I'm going to write about Glenn Langan and then I'm not going and then I'm going to write about something from the 1930s, you know? And, I, and I, I say that about myself, but I also want to say it more broadly to the students in the room who are art, studying art history. You know, art history is, a, it, can be, it can be different things at different moments in your own practice. And I think that um, 
I, do, I would never want these books to be understood as a directive to others not to deal with their, I think it's very, very important to engage with one's own 